Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for the cross of Calvary. Lord, we just praise your holy name that we can come to you just as we are with the struggles of the day, the burdens of the day. We can find relief at the foot of the cross. Lord, we pray and ask that you'd wash away our sins by the precious blood of the Lamb. And we pray and ask as we continue on this Bible journey, Lord, the Holy Spirit that would illuminate our hearts and minds right now. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight's message is entitled, God's Love Revealed in Hellfire. God's Love Revealed in Hellfire. Just a note, tomorrow, or excuse me, Tuesday, we're going to begin the exposure of the Antichrist. We're going to begin the exposure of the Antichrist. And you're going to learn this coming week, the identity of the Antichrist. You're going to learn about 10 powerful biblical scriptures that are, that are going to point very clearly who the Antichrist power is. And that's Tuesday night. So you want to make sure you are absolutely here. Let nothing stand in your way. You're going to walk away with your mind blown because you're going to see how scriptural this is. Can you say amen to that? Well, why don't we get started with our message, God's love revealed in hellfire. God's love revealed in hellfire. And just to help us understand this topic, we're just going to take off on the runway by doing a little bit of review. Now pay attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 23. Now watch what Jesus is saying right here, inspiring Paul. For as in Adam, all what? Die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made what? Alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. Can you say amen to that? He died, but he resurrected. He cast death on the ground. But look what it says. Christ the firstfruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ, when? At his what? Coming. At the second coming of Christ, that is when God gives life back to all his people who have died. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every what? I will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. We know when Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be powerful. Amen? It's going to be loud. In fact, watch what 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great, what? Noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Folks, we know from Scripture that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back with a great, what? Noise. Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. Thank you for that trumpet. Look what it says. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Again, I want you to pay attention to the scripture. I want you to pay attention to the scripture, folks. The trumpet is always associated with the second coming of Jesus. God is indicating that when he comes, it's going to be loud. It's going to be audible. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's when all the dead in Christ will rise from the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, where's that, what's that word again? Trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, what? 
incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Folks, pay attention to this. It's at the second coming of Christ that we're given brand new bodies. Amen? At the second coming of Christ, it's when the human family is reunited. When someone dies, we find out from Scripture that they simply sleep until the resurrection. And when does the resurrection take place? At the second coming on that last day. That's exactly right. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, that the living know they shall die, but the dead know what? Nothing. When somebody dies, the Bible teaches that they are in a state of cessation. There is no consciousness that they are simply sleeping. Jesus, talking about Lazarus in John chapter 11, says, Lazarus is sleeping. And then he had to explain to his disciples what sleeping meant. And he said, Lazarus is dead. Jesus called death a sleep because that's what it was. Anybody who's ever died in Christ will sleep. And in that moment, when they sleep, the next sight they will see, in the next moment, in the twinkle of an eye, they will see the second coming of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And those years, may it be 100 years or 1,000 years, will be like just a wink of an eye. And so all the time that has passed by will seem like nothing. So good old Adam, who passed away, when he closed his eyes, when he wakes up, the next sight he sees is going to be Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. Amen? And he's going to be so shocked when he looks back in heaven, when he's, when he's in heaven, and he sees all of his posterity of all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors. All of those came for me? And Jesus will say, yep, they're your children. What a sight that will be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. What's that next word? Shout with the voice of an archangel and with the, bum, ba, da, bum, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise, what? First, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when will the human family be reunited? At the second coming of Jesus. Notice what the Bible says. It is at the second coming that we will be with the Lord. When a person dies, they don't go straight to heaven. They simply sleep. But it is at the second coming when we are brought into the very presence of Jesus. And from then on, we will always be with the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Can't wait for that blessed hope when it happens. Now, here's the question we need to answer. What will the saints be doing in heaven? A lot of people have questions about that. And so when you ask your average Joe or Mo on the street and you say to them, what's it going to be like when we get to heaven? They'll tell you things like this. There's going to be this cloud that we're on top of. And we have these harps and we're going to wear toga robes. And this is people's conception of heaven. But folks, the Bible has much to say about heaven. Can you say amen to that? We're told in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, it will be part of this beautiful city called the New Jerusalem. And by the way, in prophecy, there are two cities. You find the city of Babylon, and then you find the city of Jerusalem, and there is tension between these two cities. We'll get to that next week. But folks, when the Bible is describing the new heavens and the new earth, it shows so much of all the activities that we'll be participating while we're in heaven. But watch what the Bible says right here in Revelation 20, verse 4. Watch one of the things that we'll be doing in heaven for the first thousand years. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, 
And what's that next word? Judgment was committed to them. Judgment was committed to them. They lived and reigned with Christ for how many years? A thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such death, over such the second death, has no power. But they shall be, what's that next word? Priest of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. So the Bible describes what's going to take place for that first thousand years. Notice what the scripture says. It says that we will be priests with God for 1,000 years. And it says that judgment was committed to them. Now, they may seem enigmatic to you at that moment right now, and you're thinking to yourself, what does that exactly mean, judgment will be committed to the saints? Well, watch what Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Paul continues, do you not know that we shall judge, what's that next word? Angels. For that 1,000 years in heaven, before God destroys the wicked, what he wants to do is make sure that humanity understands what God is about to do. It's very important to God that his people understand this. God will not destroy humanity without humanity first understanding why this is taking place. For that 1,000 years in heaven, we're going to be asking God questions. Why isn't my neighbor in heaven? Why isn't Joe Mo in heaven? Why isn't my aunt in heaven? And it is during that 1,000 years that God becomes crystal clear before the entire world, and he explains to them all that he did to save those individuals. And what will take place at the end of the 1,000 years we will confirm the judgment of God. We will confirm the judgment of God. When God shows us the life of the wicked and he shows us all that he did to save those people, we will realize and we will say, God, just and true are your ways. Lord, you did everything possible to save humanity, but only some accepted you and others rejected you. So there we have it. We know that the righteous are going to be in heaven for 1,000 years. The Bible says that judgment was committed to them. So we know what the righteous are going to be doing in heaven right after the second coming. Look what the Bible says right here. New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When that thousand years is up, God's going to take the new Jerusalem and he's going to bring it back to earth. God has judgment to execute and you're going to understand this more. So we know, number one, the righteous are in heaven with God for 1,000 years after the second coming. Well, what about the wicked? Watch what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were what? Finished. So while the righteous are in heaven, enjoying heaven, while they're in judgment with God in heaven for that thousand years, the wicked are simply going to be sleeping. They're going to be what? Sleeping until the thousand years are finished. Watch what else the Bible says. The righteous are in judgment for 1,000 years, and they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Revelation 20, verse 4. 
The wicked are sleeping for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Revelation 20, verse 5. And it leads us to the next question. What about the devil and his angels? What is the devil and his angels going to be doing right after the second coming? Well, watch what the Bible says in the exact same chapter. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the, what? Dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for what? A thousand years. He cast him up to the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the, what? Thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So right after the second coming, Satan is going to be trapped on this desolate planet called Earth. When Jesus comes back, he comes back with the seven plagues preceding him. The world has been utterly destroyed. There are bodies everywhere. Buildings are broken down. There is just darkness. And the Bible teaches that Satan will be trapped on this planet for 1,000 years to to really think about the results of his rebellion. And as he is under there during that 1,000 years, he will see what he has been responsible for. Now, why is that very important? Do you remember just a few days ago we studied the sanctuary? We studied the sanctuary. Do you remember what David said about the sanctuary when he was talking about the wicked? Look what he says, Psalms 37, verse 12 and 17. Behold, these are the ungodly. When I thought to understand this, how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the, what? Sanctuary of God. Then I understood their, what? And David says, I finally understand what's going to happen to sin. I finally am going to understand what's going to happen to the wicked. He says, when I began to study out the sanctuary, I finally understood their end. And we discovered, when we learned about the sanctuary the other night, and if you, don't, if you weren't there, just go ahead and see Glenn over here. He'll make sure you get it. But when we studied the sanctuary service, we learned that right after the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, did something very interesting. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, also called the scapegoat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send, them, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So when the entire Day of Atonement was over, what would take place when all the people would cheer because God had accepted their sacrifice? Aaron, the high priest, would take one goat. It was called the scapegoat. And someone would take that goat and drop it off in the wilderness and let it go because in the wilderness it would be killed, it would be left alone. What this sanctuary service represented, it represented what the Bible teaches would take place to Lucifer. The Bible teaches during that 1,000 years in heaven, he's going to be in a proverbial wilderness, a dark decimal planet. In fact, When you take a good look at what the Bible says right here, describing Lucifer's 1,000 years on earth, look what it says right there. Having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, bound him for 1,000 years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, 
That Greek word is the Greek word abusos, which is also transliterated, if you look in the Hebrew, describing the earth before anything was created. It was this dark void. What will take place again is when Satan is trapped on this planet for 1,000 years, it will just be a dark, abysmal planet with just death and destruction surrounding him. Folks, this is something very important. Satan needs to understand what are the results of his rebellion. And he will see it in this planet that has been broken by sin. With nobody else but his angels, he will wander this world for 1,000 years. And he will see the results of his transgression. Folks, so now we understand it. We understand, number one, for the 1,000 years, the righteous are in heaven. For the 1,000 years, the wicked are sleeping. And we understand that Lucifer is trapped on this planet for 1,000 years. Revelation 20, verse 7, what happens when the thousand years are up? Well, we learn the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. We also understand that the wicked are raised for judgment. Then we understand that Satan tries one last effort to take the new Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, look what the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 9, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now this is very important. After the thousand years are up, God takes the righteous back to heaven and the wicked are raised before him. And at that moment, Satan, realizing that these are the last few moments of his life, tries one last rebellion. He gathers up all the wicked right there and you can imagine them, all these generals and commanders and wicked men who oppressed people, all these great sinners, and there they are, they're surrounding the entire New Jerusalem, covering the entire earth. Look what the Bible says. They went upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And at that moment, watch what the Bible says, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and what's that next word? Devoured them. Devoured them. Now, why is this very important? Pay attention to that verb that is used, and devour them. Why is that very important? Because there is a lot of misconceptions about what happens with hellfire. Now, if you were to eat up some food, and your friend comes up to you, and right before, you, right before your friend comes up to you, you scarf down that food, and your friend says to you, hey, where's some of that delicious tofu? I want some. And you say to them, I devoured that. Now, if you were to say the words, I devoured it, would your friend expect that there would be some left on the plate? No. Why is that very important? Because the Bible teaches that when fire comes down from God out of heaven, it will completely devour them. And it's at that moment that hellfire takes place, and the earth becomes this entire lake of fire. And as the earth is just full of this fire and this lava and this purification is taking place, the new Jerusalem will be protected. You know what's very interesting? When you take what the Bible says about how God destroyed the world once before, he destroyed it with what? Water, right? And the second time that God destroys the earth, he destroys it with fire. But the water did not completely purge the earth of sin. 
but the fire purges the earth of sin. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He said, when he comes, he will not only baptize you with water, but with fire. fire. Representing, not only would there be this water baptism that takes place, but the fire baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when we get baptized, that water doesn't clean us from sin, but it's just a symbol of what the fire, the Holy Spirit, does in our hearts. Can you say amen to that? And so what takes place right here at this very moment, the earth is purged of sin. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, watch what the Bible says. Nevertheless, we look to, we according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new what? Earth. The Bible teaches that earth will be the final resting place of the redeemed. It even teaches that the new Jerusalem will be parked right, in, right on earth and that the earth will become the center of the entire universe. What God will do, he will take the most wicked place in the entire universe and he will transport the temple of God as it says in Revelation and he will make the most wicked place in the entire universe the place the place of where he will eternally abide with his people. Can you say amen to that? And that's why the Bible teaches in Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the earth. The Bible teaches that we're going to be in heaven for 1,000 years, but the earth will eventually be the final resting place of the righteous. Well, let's continue. We're going to discover that when God recreates this earth, we discovered that when God created this world to begin with. Adam was created on the sixth day. He didn't see a single thing that was created. Even when Eve was created, what was Adam doing? He was snoring. That's exactly right. Adam didn't see God create a single thing, which tells you again, Adam by faith had to believe God was the creator. Now, why is that important? Because the second time that God recreates the earth, we're all going to be witnesses of it. Can you say amen to that? And that's going to be exciting because when God recreates this world, we're going to see God do the most marvelous thing when he calls animals into existence, when he calls beautiful plants and wildlife. And can you just imagine that, that, that wonderful babbling brook and putting your hands in that water and just drinking from it? That would be better than, much better than crystal geyser, amen? Well, let's talk about hell. The word hell appears 54 times in the King James Bible. 31 times it appears in the Old Testament, and the word that is used is Sheol. The word that is used is the word Sheol. Sheol means the grave, the pit, the place of the departed, or death. Sheol does not refer to fire. It's used to refer to simply the grave or death, the end. And so what you find actually in a lot of modern translations... A lot of translators are well aware that the word hell that's used 31 times isn't actually referring to this fiery pit. They know that it just simply refers to the grave. We use this in our vernacular when we say things like, well, that person headed off to the grave, or that person is dead. They met death. And so the, in modern translations, what you actually find, 31 times that it appeared as hell, they actually will just say grave now or the pit, or the place of the departed, or simply death, because they know those 31 times, hell is not actually a fiery pit. The word hell in the New Testament, 11 times the word Hades is used. 
Hades is simply similar to the word Sheol. Twelve times the word Gehenna is used, and Gehenna is the one that's actually used to describe the lake of fire. Gehenna was actually the name of an area used in a burning refuse, a literal city dump. This was actually a thing that was taking place during the time of Jesus, that when people had trash or things they wanted to destroy, they would go to this place called Gehenna, which was continually burning, and they would throw all their garbage there, and it would be completely annihilated in that fire. And so when Jesus talking about hell, the place of, or that fiery pit, he would generally refer to or use the word Gehenna, Letting the believers understand, oh, that fiery pit. Well, what does the Bible teach about hell? Who is hell originally for? Matthew 25, verse 41, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the, the devil and his angels. I know you might have seen some movies, or you might have read some books, or seen some pictures, where you see a picture of hell, and there you have the devil in leotards, poking people, torturing people. But the Bible teaches that hell's original purpose, the very purpose that God will intend this destruction for, was originally for the devil and his angels. And folks, the reason why the devil doesn't want you to understand hell is because he knows what his future is. He knows what his future is. Folks, and when, when the devil reminds you of your past, all you need to do is remind him of his future. <laughs> remind him of his future. And folks, this is why we need to understand because there's a lot of misconception about hell and destruction. The Bible teaches very clearly that hell's original intention was for the devil and his angels. Well, where will hell be? We discovered in Revelation 20, verse 9, we read the verse, that fire will come down upon God on earth. So we understand that when this experience of hell takes place, this destruction, it will take place on earth. How long is hellfire? How long is hellfire? We're going to discover that hellfire is not ceaseless burning and torment of the wicked throughout eternity. Now, I'm going to read that one more time because I want to make this point very clear. Hellfire is not ceaseless burning and torment of the wicked throughout eternity. Let's make sure we get our proof from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Let's think about the word forever. You'll find in multiple places in Scripture where the word forever is used. And we'll look at the book of Exodus, we'll look at the book of Jonah, and we'll look at the book of 1 Samuel, and you're going to see how the word forever is actually used. Take your Bible, let's go to Exodus 21, verse 6. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And actually, let's start with verse 5, page 71. Exodus 21, verse 6. We're going to see how the word forever is actually used multiple times in Scripture. And you're going to discover that forever doesn't always mean eternity. Forever. Are we all there? Now watch what the Bible says right here. Talking about slaves. Slavery was a common thing during the times of the Old Testament. God wanted to make sure that these Israelites were not abusing people. So they were talking about slavery. Look at verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Talking about a slave who actually wanted to stay with his master. 
Then the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him, what? Forever. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think there are going to be slaves in heaven? Absolutely not. So what does the word forever mean in this context? It simply means until the end of his life. The end of his life. Now take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, page 88898. Praise the Lord for page numbers. Amen? 898. Jonah chapter 2. This is the story of a prophet who was running away from God, and God had to send a giant fish to swallow him up. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is describing the experience of when Jonah was actually in the belly of the whale. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he cried out, I cried to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's that word grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your, all your billows and waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The water surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse 6, I went into the moorings of the mountain. The earth with its bars closed, me, closed behind me. What's that next word? Forever, yet you have brought my life from the pit, or Lord, my God. But here's a question I want to ask you. How long was Jonah actually in the belly of the wheel? Three days and three nights. Yet he uses that word forever, not describing the quantity, but rather describing the quality of time. We often use it in our English language today. We'll say things like, I was there forever. Not describing actual the time, but describing the quality of the experience. It seems like a long time because of how intense the situation is. Well, let's continue. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 21 through 22. Let's go there. 1 Samuel, page 257. Chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Now the man Elikanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him up, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there, what? Forever. And we discovered that Samuel actually had a priestly ministry, and he was around the temple all the time. But folks, Samuel died. You see what's very interesting about the word forever. It's often used in scripture to mean simply until the end of the age or till the end of something. We use the word today and as an idiom in our language. I was in line forever. Now I always bring this up, but when I go home to Southern California, my mom loves going shopping at the fabric store. And there's something about the fabric store. There's little particles that are actually floating in the air. If you've ever been to a fabric store, you'll get there and all of a sudden you'll start, your allergies will start to come out and you'll start sneezing and you'll get very congested. It happens to me all the time whenever I go to the fabric store, even Home Depot with all the sawdust. But when I go down and I visit my mom and she says, let's go to the fabric store, we'll go there for about 45 minutes and what I'll do, I'll get very sleepy and for that 45 minutes, I'll begin to fall asleep. 
When I get out of the fabric store, I said, Mom, it seems like we were there forever. Not describing so much the quantity, but the quality. The intensity magnifies the experience. And what we're going to discover about hell, that it's more of a quality of time than it actually is a quantity of time. And you'll see the evidence in Scripture. And how do you determine what the word forever simply means? Allow the context to determine what forever means. Can you say amen to that? You see, for example, this word over and over again. You'll see words like the word unquenchable or the word eternal fire. Well, let's see how eternal is eternal fire. Isaiah 34, describing the destruction of Jerusalem, look what it says. It shall not be quenched day, night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. But folks, I want you to understand something about Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was burned, it only lasted several years. It only lasted several years. So what does the word forever or unquenchable or eternal fire mean? It simply means that God started the fire and no thing, nobody or nothing can put out that fire until it accomplishes that which God sent it to do. You'll see more example of that in Jeremiah 17 verse 27. Look what God says, I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. But we know that Jerusalem isn't burning right now as we speak. And when Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was not burning as well. So what is being described here? When God is talking about the word unquenchable, or he's talking about the word eternal fire, what he's describing is a divine fire, a divine judgment that he starts, and nothing puts it out until it finishes its job. No water is going to put it out and it will come to an end. Let's look at the word, again, a quenchable and eternal fire in the Bible. Look what the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude chapter 7, and suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. But folks, if you go down to the area that scholars believe is Sodom and Gomorrah, what you'll discover is that Sodom and Gomorrah isn't there. It's not there at all. So what is that eternal fire? It was that fire that was started by God and it didn't stop until it completely consumed that which God sent it to do. In fact, Peter elaborates. Look what he says about Sodom and Gomorrah again. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Ashes. And ashes is that material that remains when, fire, when a fire has started and completed its job. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemn them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward will live ungodly. So here we understand that eternal fire isn't actually an eternal fire. It's simply a divine fire. When God starts a fire, no one can put it out. It will continue until it accomplishes what it was sent to do. It will burn until, what's that next word? Completion. Is there an end to eternal fire? Yes. And God chooses the end of the eternal fire. An eternal fire is simply a fire whose effects, pay attention to that keyword, effects or results are what? Eternal. An everlasting punishment is a punishment 
whose effects or results are everlasting. What you will not find in scripture are the words everlasting punishing. But what you do find is everlasting punishment, simply meaning that its effects and results are eternal. The end result of the wicked, when God sends the hell fire down and it completely consumes the wicked, well, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, that they're simply ashes. In fact, when you read the book of Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, I want you to write that verse down. It describes that when we walk upon the new earth, that we'll walk upon the ashes of the wicked. There are no more wicked burning when God lets us out of the new Jerusalem and when he recreates the planet. Why? Because the fire has completely destroyed the wicked. God has put in complete end to sin. Look what Psalms 37 verses 9 through 11 verse 20 says. For evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait, but those who wait on the Lord, they will in, what's that next word? Inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be, what? No more. But the meek shall, what? Inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Revelation chapter 19 Verses 1 to 3, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again, they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Let's take our Bible and let's open up to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Page 1089. Are we all there? Look what the Bible says. For the wages of sin is, what's that next word? Death. The Bible teaches the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. But look what else the Bible says. But the gift of God is what? eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is only the righteous that get immortality. It is only the righteous that get to live forever. The Bible teaches that those who cling to sin and those who hold on to sin and refuse to let go of sin, God has to put an end to sin. And when, though, when he puts an end to a sin, those who hold on to that sin are going to be burned up as well. But the Bible makes it very clear that it is not the wicked that get eternal life or immortality or in some other form and they live forever. No, no, no. The Bible teaches that it is the righteous who get to live forever, who get immortality. Can you say amen to that? Some simple definitions of what mortal and immortal means. The word mortal simply means subject to what? Death. The word immortal means not subject to death. So if the righteous are getting immortality, if the righteous are getting, are getting eternal life, if the righteous are living for the ceaseless ages of eternity, it's because God has given them the gift of immortality. But it is only to the righteous God gives that gift. Watch what the Bible says on immortality. 1 Timothy. Now to the king eternal. What's that next word? immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 
He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who, what's that next word? Alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Pay attention to the second verse. The Bible teaches that only God alone has inherent immortality, and any other creature that has immortality receives it only as a gift, as we read in Romans chapter 6. The wicked do not get eternity. It is only the righteous that get eternity. John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know that verse by heart. We have the young children quoted. But John chapter 3, verse 16 actually describes the same concept. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? Whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have what? Everlasting life. It is only the righteous that get everlasting life, but the wicked do not. The Bible makes it very clear that God is going to put a complete end to wickedness. That hellfire is not something that burns for eternity. Hellfire is not this, this torturous sort of picture that's placed upon God where God takes his great pleasure in just burning people for all of eternity. No, no, no. The Bible teaches that sin is a cancer and God has to deal with that cancer. He has to remove this cancer because with sin comes suffering, with sin comes death, with sin comes sorrow. And God wants to put a final end to sorrow. Can you say amen to that? We also discovered that immortality was given to Adam and Eve as long as they ate of the what? Tree of life. And if you need a scripture verse for that, all you simply do is go to Genesis chapter 3 verse 22. So God gave immortality to Adam and Eve, and the way they would get immortality was by partaking of the tree of life that was found in the Garden of Eden. In fact, when God removes Adam and Eve of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he says, we need to remove them lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. God wanted to make sure that suffering would not be eternal. That suffering would not be immortal. So he says, I'm going to remove you out of the garden for the sake of humanity. Because God will not allow suffering to continue very long. Amen? But where did this teaching come from? That sinners are burning in hell even now as we speak forever and ever and all throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. That Cain who killed one man is burning for all of eternity as well as Hitler who was responsible for the death of millions of Jews. They get an equal punishment. They're all burning for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Where did this teaching come from that the wicked have immortality? We also learned from the Egyptian culture that they believed in an immortal soul. We learned from the Babylonian culture as well that they believed in an immortal soul. We learned from the, the Greeks, they believed in this concept of an immortal soul. We also learned from Hinduism, they believe in this immortality, this part of us. We learned that this lie originally came from the devil. Do you remember what he told Eve? When she was partaking of that apple, when she was partaking of that sin, God made it very clear to Eve, don't do this because you will die. In other words, sin has a consequence. But you remember what the devil said to Eve? There's no consequence for sin. You're going to live forever. And this lie has been promoted throughout the entire world. And through the dark ages, it was through the dark ages, 
when several people took the Bible, they outlawed the Bible. They condemned people who studied the Bible, the reformers. They, people who, they actually took the Bible, many of the Roman priests, and actually put it in a dungeon and outlawed it, put it in the Latin, and made it completely unaccessible to the vernacular of the people. And it was during the Dark Ages, people didn't know what the scriptures were teaching, so a lot of teachings began to enter in, and unfortunately, a lot of these teachings have spread throughout the entire world. And this is where you get this false picture of God, that he takes delight in burning sinners forever and ever and ever and ever. But folks, how is that possible with the God of love? It's not possible. The Bible teaches that when God destroys the wicked, it says in Isaiah, it's going to be called his strange act. It's going to be an act that breaks his heart. But God cannot allow sinners and sin and suffering and destruction to, to continue. Here are some smart questions to ask about the common view about this eternal hell. Is it in, is in a ceaseless burning torment, torment just and fair? If we were to take what pe most people believe about this idea that God burns people for all of eternity, let's ask the question, is it even fair? And you know as well as I do, in the heart of hearts, that is not fair. Even a young child who knows the simple difference between right and wrong will tell you that doesn't sound right. Why, folks? Because it's not right. And this teaching came in through the dark ages. But the Bible makes it very clear that hell is an experience the wicked are going to go through, and it's going to put an end to their existence. Their God's not going to burn them and torture them for the ceaseless ages of eternity. It would be completely out of harmony with his character. Folks, I want you to understand something. I just remember a verse right now found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Shall not the judge of the earth do right? If you know the difference between right and wrong, and you know that this idea that God would burn sinners for all of eternity is unjust and fair, you don't think God is, has more morals than you do? Of course he does. But this teaching came in through the dark ages, and unfortunately it's been accepted by a lot of people. If God creates a new heavens and new earth, where would that supposed hell would be? Can you imagine that? All the righteous are praising God. They're just enjoying the glory of God. And just down the road, there the wicked are burning for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Who could be happy in a heaven like that? Not me. Because it's not biblical. The picture of hell has the devil in charge. Why would God allow it? Does he take joy and misery? We read in Matthew chapter 25 that hell is actually prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you say amen to that? Here are some other questions. If unrepentant sinners are burning for the ceaseless ages of eternity, doesn't that imply that sin will be eternal? Doesn't that imply that suffering will be eternal? But the Bible makes it very clear that there shall be, right after the destruction of the wicked, there shall be no more death. And God will wipe away all the tears. How could God say there will be no more death if wicked people are burning for the ceaseless ages of eternity? Can you say amen to that? <laughs> Mankind originally needed the tree of life for immortality. Outside of that God-given source... What would sustain sinners in an eternal hell? Can you imagine? Here's some sinners burning for millions of years. And God says, I'm going to make you burn longer, but I'm going to need you to eat of this tree of life. 
That sounds completely facetious. Why? Because it is. The Bible teaches that the righteous are given access to the tree of life. When you read the book of Genesis, you find that God gave the tree of life to Adam and Eve as long as they were obedient to him. In the book of Revelation, when God restores uh, earth back to humanity and he dwells with his people, the Bible teaches that the tree of life, once again, is given to the people of God. Well, they'll partake of, the Bible says, a new fruit every month. Can you say amen to that? Can't wait to taste that delicious fruit. Folks, this is extremely important. It's extremely important because this false teaching of hell has made God look like a villain, a villain more villainous than even the devil himself. But the Bible teaches the truth about the character of God. God is not going to scare anybody into heaven. I remember I received certain people come to me with their little comic books and little, little advertisements and little pamphlets, and it shows a picture of people who are burning. And it describes how some of these Christians are saved by the burning by going to heaven. But folks, if your motivation to going to heaven is based upon the fact that you want to avoid hell, you're not going to be happy in heaven because your motivation is just trying to escape danger. But if your motivation for going to heaven is Jesus, you'll surely get there. Amen? Amen. Because heaven is Jesus. Heaven is is Jesus, and that's got to be our motivation. The Bible teaches in 1 Timothy, perfect love cast out fear. God is not trying to prod you into heaven or scare you into heaven. No, no, no. The Bible is teaching that God is drawing you to heaven by cords of love. Can you say amen to that? Hell, according to the Bible, number one, no one is burning in hell right now, praise the Lord. No one will burn for the, for the eternity. Number three, God will destroy sin and completely, completely and make an end of it. Can you say hallelujah? Number four, you don't have to be there because Jesus paid the price for you. Can you say amen to that? Folks, Revelation 20, verse 12, describes the experience when the wicked are being destroyed. When the wicked are finally getting the judgment. You can imagine the scene as God, with, look what the Bible says in Revelation 20 verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were open. What are the books? The book of their life. Another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The Bible shows that one day, those who reject the mercy of God, the goodness of God, God's going to show them why they're not going to be in heaven, why they can't be in heaven, because they would run from God. God's going to show them their life, and they're going to see it very clearly, the moments that they rejected God. And it is during this destruction, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul or just the heart, we learned yesterday, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the heart or the soul and body in hell. What hell is ultimately? It will not only be a destruction of the body, but of the mind. What will take place? The guilt of humanity, the guilt of the individual will return to them. And they will see in those moments where they have rejected God. And in their life, they will see Jesus around them as a young child. The books are open, the Bible teaches. They will see Jesus around them as a young man, witnessing to them. Jesus trying to reach out to them. They will see in their lives where the mercy of God was being poured out to save them, but they rejected that mercy. 
over and over again, Jesus made several attempts to save that person, and they will realize it wasn't the preacher that they were seeing, it was Jesus speaking to them. It wasn't that pamphlet that came that showed the love of Jesus, it was Jesus speaking to them. It wasn't their husband or wife trying to witness to them, it was Jesus trying to witness to them. And over and over again, they will see the book of their life, and they will realize so many times where they rejected the mercy of God, where they pushed Jesus outside and said, Lord, I want nothing to do with you. But Jesus was knocking, trying to get in. They will see their life where they have rejected the goodness of God over and over again. They will see it. And finally, Jesus has to say, goodbye. And you can imagine what the Bible says. You can imagine how the Bible describes this. This sad scene where God has to say goodbye to some of his children. Folks, the Lord doesn't want to lose any one of you. You are so precious to him. You are so precious to Jesus. So precious to Jesus. So precious, the Bible teaches, that it was at the Garden of Gethsemane that he took hell upon himself. Do you remember what Jesus says? Fear not him who can destroy the body, but him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible teaches he took the second death upon him. Even Jesus, when he was in the garden with his disciples, began to stumble and fall, and he began to pray. And the Bible says great drops of blood came from him. Why? Look what it says, Matthew 26. Then he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. What was Jesus saying? My soul is dying right now. He was dying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was facing the second death. His heart was being annihilated, not because of his sin. He had no sin, but because of our sin. The Bible teaches that while the whole weight of the world was upon him, we were nailing him to the cross. While he was going through that second death, that hell, the destruction of the body and the mind, while Jesus was dying that death, he was saying, Father, forgive them. And on the cross, when darkness surrounded Jesus, when hell was upon the Son of Man, he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt forsaken by God, what the wicked will feel at the end of time, so that you would never feel forsaken by God. Jesus went to hell for you because he could not be in heaven without you. Can you say amen to that? And when you accept, accept Jesus as your Savior, when you accept Jesus as the Lamb of God, you will understand that He took hell upon Himself so that you would never, ever have to die the second death and be blotted out for all of eternity. It is through His grace that you've given eternal life. Folks, when you look at what Jesus Christ has done for you, you realize that He is saving you from annihilation. He is saving you from destruction. He is pleading with souls even today. Come to me and I will give you life. No one has to die the second death, folks. No one has to die the second death. We're going to do something very special. We're going to pass out these little cards to you right now. And this is going to be time for you to make a decision, but we put it on a card so it would be some type of tangible decision for you. This is going to be a time for you to make a very special decision for Jesus. 
One of my friends was preaching this exact same message. Preaching the exact same truths found in the scriptures. At the end of it, this big old army captain came up to him. Big old guy. And he says to him, are you telling me that hell isn't forever? Are you actually telling me that there aren't sinners burning in hell right now? And my friend said, yeah. And the army captain said, show me from the scripture. And my friend began to share the scripture with him. Showed him the beautiful truths about the love of God. And as he was sharing it, this army captain began to tear up. He began to cry and he began to weep. And my friend said, why are you crying? And he said, I rejected God so many years ago. And the reason why I rejected God is because some preacher told me that my son who died in a car accident was burning right now in the fiery pits of hell. And I could not love a God like that. But now that I understand the beautiful truths of the scripture, now that I understand that there is a God in heaven who doesn't want me to die, there's a merciful God, I want to follow him. Folks, I want you to take this card out. This is your decision for Jesus. This isn't my decision. I have my own card. I want everybody to fill out one. So if you need one, just tell your table leader. I want you to fill this out. My decision for Jesus. I want you to check it off. When you realize that there is a God in heaven who is pursuing you with an incredible love. If you believe that, I want you to check that off. I believe it. That God, the God of heaven and earth is pursuing me. He's showing me who he really is. You want to worship God with your whole heart. I want you to check that off. You have some questions. I want you to check that off. You want to be baptized or rebaptized? Check that off. But folks, this is your decision for Christ. The Lord knows his angels are by your side. Folks, this is the question that matters the most right here. Will you accept Jesus as your Savior, the one who saves you? from hell, from annihilation. If that's your decision, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. Let's pray. Family, Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. God, we will never, ever have to die the second death because you died it for us in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Lord, it's why the righteous throw down their crowns at your feet and say, worthy is the Lamb. May we go out with our hearts stirred and with this, this clarified view of who you really are, truly the God of love. Thank you. In Jesus' holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.